Folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. There's always one man's view of the changing world, uh, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is November the 29th, 2021. One more day and November will be gone, and we will enter December. And with the episode being 2989, you know what that means. Uh, within the next few weeks, in December, TSPC... That is the survival podcast for those the survival podcast for those of you new to the broadcast. We'll hit episode three thousand. That is certainly a momentous event. I don't have anything planned like we did with episode um, uh, five hundred or episode one thousand or anything like that uh, special for it. It'll just be a regular episode, but it will be a milestone event. I think to have three thousand episodes of a podcast successfully running uh, for over thirteen years is pretty cool. Today we're going to be talking about starting an indoor hydroponics operation, and I'm going to come at this a little bit differently. I'm going to give you the three systems that I think would be most beneficial to do in an indoor system. I'm not going to take the approach I did last year, uh, where I built a very large, you know, on a metal rack, mobile indoor system designed to produce a massive amount of food. I'm going to take the system today of, let's produce enough so that you and your family assuming you have a family of about four, can have a few salads a week, every week, all winter long, and have a really great variety of leafy greens. We're not going to talk about tomatoes or peppers or any of that stuff today. We're going to keep this to leafy greens. We're going to make it very, very simple. I'm going to go through uh, Kratky systems. I'm going to go through uh, water pump-driven systems. I'm going to go through air pump-driven systems. I'm going to give you the advantages and disadvantages to each. I'm going to talk about all the things that the system can do for you, including what we could do at, let's say, end of winter. I'm going to explain why I'm suggesting indoors at this time. And I'm going to try to make this as easy to understand and as simplistic to do as possible. And I'm going to try to explain why it's such a good time to be doing this. And how, if you're like, but I want a greenhouse and I want to be outdoors and I don't want to pay for lighting and all, it doesn't matter. We're talking about a very small, simplistic system here. And what you'll learn about hydro today, and what you'll learn about hydro if you get involved with it, it's infinitely scalable. You can just keep adding on modularly over time. And if you master small, big gets easy. So it could even evolve then as a learning project into something that maybe is a greenhouse operation, maybe even a heated greenhouse operation. There's so much that can be done here. And I'll explain to those of you that are right now, like, why not aquaponics? Why not fish too? I'll explain it all. I'll do it all in just a bit. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today, is JM Bullion. I have had the exact same recommendation for diversifying into precious metals for over 13 years. Like I said, we're heading for episode 3000, and my recommendation has yet to change in any significant way on what you should be doing with silver and gold. It's 5 to 10% of your net wealth belongs in silver and gold. It's never going to change. That's probably, well, I don't say it's never going to change. It's unlikely to change anytime soon. So we all know we should be investing in silver and gold, precious metals, as, as a form of hard money. Now, where do you get your silver and gold? Jam bullion. You want to know why? Okay. All order ship free. Now, they do have a minimum order of 100 bucks, but that's not a lot of silver or gold at any one time, right? So all your order ship free. 
If you're an MSB member, you get a discount. I don't know anybody that discounts silver and gold. I've got that hooked up for you. The president of the company, I can reach out to personally by email, and I usually hear back within minutes of doing so if there's ever an issue. Hasn't been an issue in years to bring to his attention, but he's there if necessary, and they sponsor the show that you love. So why would you buy anywhere else, I guess would be my question. Oh, yeah, they have better pricing than like Monex, Apex, and Lear Capital, all the big giant silver houses that I can't talk to the ownership of. Yeah, so they're better priced better service, and they support the show you love. I, I really have to ask, why would you go anywhere else? Next up today, Bulk Ammo. You know, I, they seem to come together in the rotation pretty often, Bulk Ammo and J.M. Bullion. That's cool because I always refer to Bulk Ammo as the way you get the other precious metal, copper-jacketed lead. A gun, no ammo, equals expensive club. That's all it is, or maybe a barter item. A gun can't do what a gun is supposed to do without ammo. And that means we need to stock our ammo up. We need to do it in bulk. And where else would you go for that other than bulk ammo? They do a discount for MSB members. Uh, they have been a long-term sponsor. We're talking nine years we've been working with these guys. They ship stuff so fast when it shows up. You're like, what the hell could that be? I don't. And then all of a sudden your ammo's there. It's better than going to the store and dealing with those people. And I'll just leave it at that. Check them out today at bulkammo.com. With that, let's go ahead and dig on to, into this. I'll let you know here. You'll hear a little bit of a transition kind of in the, the tone of the show. Uh, I am going to be doing the show today as a live stream on YouTube and Float. And so you'll be getting the audio from that. So you might hear some interaction with some people. You might be thinking, but Jack, I how, how do I find out about these live streams so I don't miss them? Well, number one, you could go to YouTube, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and click the little alert thing and the email thing. And then whenever I do a live stream, you should get an email from YouTube. You could also get on the TSP uh, Telegram channel. I usually put it out there or follow me on social media. So that's how you could be on these two. Uh, I do usually take questions from the audience at the end. Depending on how long it goes, sometimes the Q&A from the audience on the live feed goes on the air on the audio podcast. Sometimes it does not. So that's what we're about to transition into right now. And then we'll come back and close the show down uh, with a few other things. Well, hey there, folks. We are live, and uh, this is what I call the heart of the show uh, for podcast number 2989, and we're talking about hydroponic systems today. If you're watching this on YouTube in the future and you're not uh, really clear on who I am and what we do, uh, this video is part of an audio podcast. I, since I started using StreamYard, it made it really easy to take kind of the, the meat of the middle of the podcast and put it in a video format and reach a larger audience, so that's what this is which means you may hear some things on today's show that are not directly about hydroponics uh, here and there. And I'm going to lead off with that, just telling you what the rest of the uh, rest of the uh, week has in store for you. Uh, tomorrow I'm going to be doing a podcast on cryptocurrency and specifically NFTs. And if you're watching this and you're like, yeah, I don't care, I don't do crypto, I'm here for hydroponics. If you're here for hydroponics because you're like all about like kind of this new world of community and building local economies and things like that and self-sufficient, self-reliance, Like what I'm going to cover with NFTs tomorrow, I guarantee you something you've never heard. Now, non-fungible tokens in the cryptocurrency world, NFTs, um, those right now are being used mostly to sell things like stupid sporting gifts and JPEGs and supposed artwork that can be replicated a billion times, and it may not seem to make sense. But I have been doing a lot of research into this, and I have found some things that I think are going to be kind of revolutionary. And then on Wednesday, I'm going to have uh, someone with us named Sylvia Johnson, and she's going to talk about 
the aftermath of a home invasion and what that's like and getting through it. So lots of varied topics coming this week. Uh, Thursday, of course, we'll have expert counsel. And Friday, out back with Jack with a variety of topics. So anyway, let's dig into today's topic again, which is hydroponics. Um, whenever I talk about hydroponics, I get some of the people that are, have various environmental concerns. I've already destroyed that. If you follow the link, it's in the podcast notes today. I will uh, put a link to the video that I did on this where I totally destroyed all that FUD long ago, so I won't get into it today. But I also get people that, you know, very well-meaning. It's not, it's not some sort of environmentalist FUD or something like that. It's, um, it's more the, well, I don't understand why. And is the food as nutritious and things like that? And why, why not do aquaponics? Because we do aquaponics. It's all organic, right? We feed the fish. The fish poop and pee. And then that gets turned into nutrient for the plants. And it's completely balanced. We have less inputs. Well, you'll find that feeding fish in an aquaponic system will probably cost you a lot more than fertilizing plants in a hydro system. The other thing that you really need to always keep in mind with aquaponics. Aquaponics is a method of growing vegetation. That's really what it is. Fish are a byproduct. You will never get enough fish out of an aquaponic system for it to really be a protein-generating system the way it's sold to you uh, with a lot of people trying to sell crap online. The other thing you'll learn with uh, aquaponics is the smaller the system, the more difficult it is to balance. Anybody out there that's ever worked in the world of aquariums, you can't see behind me, but I have uh, six, seven, eight aquariums sitting right on the wall to the other side here. Um, knows the smaller aquariums, uh, they go south faster with your balance. So the larger the ecosystem, the easier it is to keep in balance. So if you're going to do an indoor system and you're thinking about doing uh, hydroponics, or I'm sorry, aquaponics, you're going to find that dietary nature is going to be smaller. It's not going to produce much in the way of fish for you. But we're talking about indoor systems today. The other thing is, if you're not experienced yet, I believe if you learn hydro, it's really easy to go learn aqua. Okay, that's where we bring fish in. And when you're doing hydro and you're just getting started and you're trying to get that first one to work and you want it to be uh, very reliable and dependable for you um, indoors through your winter like we're talking about today, especially as you know, kind of getting out of the gate, if you need more nutrient in hydro, you add more nutrient. And if you need more nutrient in aquaponics, you add more fish. And if you start adding artificial nutrient, you can kill your fish. You may or may not, but you probably will when you're getting your feet wet, so to speak, in it. So it's just an easier thing to do. And people say, well, why not soil-based? Dirt's heavy. And then every container has to have enough dirt to support the plants and what have you. So I'm all for in-ground soil-based gardening outside. right? So it just doesn't really work as well indoors if you're going to try to do soil-based. The other thing about aquaponics, fish poop, fish produce various waste, various waste turns into various slurries. That's why all good systems that are aquaponic systems have solid separators in them. That's another component you'd be trying to put inside. And even with that, sooner or later, solids get into places in the system and they clog delivery valves. Clogged delivery valves often result in overflows. So you're a lot less likely to experience an overflow malfunction indoors with a hydro system than an aquaponics-based system. So if you are like, gee, I don't want to flood my house, then you probably don't want to start. Now, I've seen some really cool stuff where people use like fish tanks and stuff like that. If you want to do that, go ahead. 
I'm giving you kind of the skinny on why we're doing what we're doing and why we're talking about what we're doing. Um, the thing, though, is aquaponics is far more complex. It has far more things that can go wrong with it. And hydro is incredibly cheap, and it is ideal for growing what we're talking about today, greens. You're not going to hear me talk about tomatoes and peppers and watermelons and cucumbers or any of that stuff today. Now, both hydro and aquaponics are great systems for growing those types of, and they're not really vegetables, guys. They're fruits. Fruit crops in, especially in greenhouses and outdoor systems. Um, but still... All of the hydro operations I've talked to, I'm talking you know mid to large scale commercial, they make all their money on leafy greens. They might sell some other stuff. It might help them get more contracts with restaurants, etc. But their money crop is leafy greens, and the reason is high quality leafy greens are expensive by the pound. In some cases, they're more expensive by the pound than meat is, right? And they are fast turn, meaning you can grow them out, cut them, they come again. Maybe do that a couple couple, three times and replace the plant and you get into this synchronous continuous production. At home scale, that's turbocharged because we're not going to cut the whole plant for harvest to put in a box and ship to somebody. We're going to take a little of this, a little of that, a little of this, and we can really make a first planting go a long time with a ton of variety. We're getting an extremely good return of investment on our money. Some of the systems I'm going to talk about building today It's hard for me to see how you wouldn't completely pay for the system in output in 45 to 60 days. And if we start going into these other methodologies, you're not going to be able to do that that quickly. So that's why I'm sticking with this today. Um, and again, if you don't have enough nutrient in a hydro system, you add more. If you see deficiencies, you address the deficiency. And if you're going to use the main um, nutrient that I'm going to talk about today and you follow the instructions and do it in the right order, which is master blend, You're not going to have any nutrient deficiencies growing leafy green crops anyway. You're, just, you're not going to have to deal with it. So why start an under, indoor system and why talk about it today? Well, have you looked at your calendar lately? Unless you're joining us from you know the, the, the southern hemisphere, Santa Claus is about to come and eat cookies, and that means the snow is coming, the cold's coming. Even here in Texas, we're already starting to have days where the temperature's getting down into the freezing, frosty range. And you know we get freezes and frosts here that kill things. Now, it's true. Most of the stuff I'm going to talk about growing today, most, not all, will survive frost and even freeze, especially once established. But it doesn't grow very fast. So we bring it indoors. We get that rapid, quick turnover. We get a lot of control over it. And we can grow in winter. It's easy to tend, even in bad weather. Do you, have you ever woken up, even on a day where you don't have to go to work, especially when you have to go to work? Right, and you know, you bundle up, go outside. If you keep chickens like I do or ducks like I do, you let them out, and you go right back in the house. And you make that cup of coffee. You're like, oh, screw that! I don't want to be out there. But you know, you're going to cook today. Maybe you want a salad. Maybe you want some herbage or whatever. And then you know what you're thinking? I don't want to go out there. And you don't really see to things the way that you would if it was just like in the corner of your kitchen or in an extra bedroom upstairs or something like that. So it's easy to tend to, which means you'll do the tending uh, on an indoor situation during the winter. Um, and you can start measuring your access to food in steps. We hear all the time, you know, buy local, grow local, et cetera. What are your food miles? You're turbocharging that. Um, I have an upstairs guest bedroom. That's where I usually do my indoor hydro during the winter. And it's literally up the stairs around the corner, and there's my food. I'm looking at maybe even putting it over here in the corner of my office this year. 
I've got some stuff there that's in the way right now. If it went away and I'm not really using any of it, the, my rack, my growing rack would fit right in there. So I could literally be in here gnawing on some freaking kale or something or some basil or something while this is going on. Um, also, you'll have almost zero pest or disease concerns. You're not going to have, you know, flea beetles or anything like that really showing up indoors. I haven't ever. I'll put it to you that way. I've had a little bit of things gnaw here and there. Uh, but generally, it's such a small localized thing. There's not a reservoir of pests. So even if you get a little pest action, you know, a little, a little bit of soap and water, a little bit of a mist, and your pest problems are gone if you even have to do that. So we don't have any pest problems. Deer don't come inside your house and eat your lettuce, right? From, from little bitty pests to great big pests or thieves. Don't come inside and take your food away from you. Uh, next is that if you build it inside, you're going to have a portable system. Unless you're going down in a basement you're building some large-scale system. You're building the type of systems we're talking about today. You're using things like Rubbermaid totes or uh, what they call busing trays or something like that for your reservoirs. You're using little bitty pumps, etc. You're talking about a system that if you decide, hey, winter's over. I've got this pretty cool place, let's say, on the eastern side of my house where it gets great sun in the morning and it's shaded in the heat of the day. I could just take this outside and use it outside. It's going to be easy. If you build a system outside, that's probably not going to happen. So now we're talking about a portable system. And we can migrate that system outside. And I also believe that it will teach you everything that you need to learn. Because one thing you have to start thinking about with these systems is that they are modular. In expansion, you'll start to realize with this core, you know, I can go out as far as I can throw that water and return it if I'm using some, some sort of recirculating system, or as far as I can spread that water on level if I'm just plumbing multiple containers together and maybe setting up a reservoir to, to deliver fluid as it evaporates. I can pretty much infinitely expand that system. Now, there will be a point where if you're going to go to a certain size, you might want to change things up and go to larger systems, but at home scale production, What you build inside can be the core of growing more outside during your uh, outside term. Or it can be the knowledge you need to put together a larger system outside. So it's a great way to start. You can do it now. And we're coming into Christmas time. We're coming in a time where people have a lot more downtime, a lot more inside time. So the biggest commodity that we tend to lack in our time, in our, in our world today, is time. So you have the time and you can do it indoors. It's a good project. So that's what we're talking about it today. Um, I want to talk about three basic systems with you today. And I'm not going to tell you specifically how to put them together. I'm going to give you the basics of what they are, their advantages and disadvantages, so you can start putting them together. And I want to start right from the beginning saying, if anything I say doesn't make sense, I'm going to do some Q&A at the end. But even if it still doesn't make sense. You know what it'll make sense? It'll make sense when you pick a container, you pick a method, you get some nutrient, you mix it up, You put it in, you set it under some lights. We'll talk about lights in a bit, why we want lights when we're doing indoors. Even if we have a sunny window, we want lights. Um, and you do it. None of this is hard. I've done a lot of different projects in the eight years that I've been at Nine Mile Farm. Nothing has been easier to have success with than hydroponics. Nothing has been easier to do than hydroponics. Now, I did, I did go in the world of aquaponics first. Uh, large-scale outdoor system. So I had some knowledge, but honestly, it wouldn't have mattered. If you can drill a hole, if you can install a bulkhead, which means you can drill a hole and put something in there and screw a nut onto it tightly, if you can put some PVC pipe together, 
If you understand how to plug in a pump, or even if you don't, depending on what system you use, this is not hard. Nothing about this is hard, and I'm going to, again, I'm going to try to simplify everything today so you just get that broad uh, macro understanding. So the three systems I want to co cover today are crack key, which is, and I'm going to call it, I'm going to make a, a delineation here and call it pure crack key, because in my opinion, I've been told I'm wrong, but, but Dr. Crack key says I'm right, okay? A, a, a crack key element, which is an air gap, can go in any system and provide benefit to it. So Dr. Crack key says I'm not wrong, so you might imagine Crack key Hydroponics is named after a PhD named Dr. Crack key out of Hawaii. So we're talking about Crack key. We're going to talk about pump-driven. And when I say pump-driven, I'm talking about a pump that moves water. So I'm talking about like a fountain pump. You know, I recommend a pump uh, called Active Aqua. They're a little bit on the more expensive side. They'll go 40 to 80 bucks depending on the size that you want. You're welcome to buy $15 and $20 pumps to do this with. They'll work. They're just more likely to die. But they also might not die. We don't have to run them all the time either, so we can put them on a little timer that's eight bucks. That's going to extend what's called their MTBFs. That's a fancy engineering term for mean time between failures. In other words, when's it going to shift the bed? So that's usually measured in time, operational time. So if it's not under a constant run time, even your cheap pump will last a long time. If you keep an extra pump, and you should on hand for any system you have, this is why I like to standardize on pumps. So I have basically a small pump I use, a 550 Active Aqua, and a large pump I use, which is a 2,500-gallon, we're not going to get into today, but made by Danner. And I have at least one of those each at all times on a shelf. And even if I have three systems running that same pump, if one dies, I have a spare. Okay, And then I order another one and keep one in inventory. So no matter what you use, keep one in spare. And you can use the cheaper pumps in this situation because it's hydro and it's indoors. And if that pump dies, you have days to replace it. Before everything, unless you're doing a nutrient film technique that we're not going to talk about today, as long as there's fluid there, and especially when you put that crack key element, which we'll get to in a second, in there, you really need to check it to make sure it didn't die because everything will look okay. You need to make sure that it's functioning. But you, so you can use the cheaper pumps even if you want to. Uh, I will have a link in the video notes here and at the audio podcast is where it will take you to. And on the audio podcast, links to all the equipment that I personally use for my systems as well. Uh, so when I talk about pump-driven, again, we're talking about a waterfall-style pump, something that actually moves water. And then I want to talk about air pump-enabled. And I want to say it that way because you can have an air pump system that physically actually elevates and moves water the same way that a, a, a fountain or a waterfall pump would do. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about just blowing bubbles through an air stone. And I'll explain how all this works by starting with cracky and what the Kratky advantages are and what Kratky is. So Kratky simply means we take a vessel or a container, let's say this box that I'm holding for those that are watching the video was a uh, watertight container, we put a hole in the top of it, we fill it up with fluid, and we put a plant or two in this size box, we put a plant or two into it with little net cups, little sponges or rock hole, whatever media that we decide to use. I like rapid rooter plugs. I think they are the easy button. They always work, and you can reuse them, so they're actually really cheap. We stick a couple seeds in there. We put a light over it. It starts to grow. As the plant grows, the roots go down, but we also have evaporation, and the fluid gets lower and lower and lower and lower in the container. Now, why would we use a pump 
in a hydro system in the, in the first place? Why wouldn't we just stick it in water and, hey, hey, plant grow, there's all the stuff you need. The problem is oxygen. If there's not enough oxygen to the roots, the, the roots will begin to rot, they will become unhealthy, and they will die. And one of the things you can look at any hydro system and know if you're getting enough oxygen to the roots, if you're having any of these problems that are oxygen-related in general, there can be funguses and things, but usually it's O2. You pull the plant out and you look at the roots. If they're beautiful white roots, you got no problems. If they're starting to turn a little bit grayish, yellowish, or something like that, sometimes it's still okay. But when they start to really turn color, that plant's going to die. Those roots are going to start to rot off, and they're going to rot off because they're not getting enough oxygen. What Dr. Kratke figured out was you put this stuff in this container and you just let the water evaporate and you don't replace it. You don't replace it. And what happens is that air gap, those roots that are above the water get all the oxygen they want, they're in the air. And then the roots down in the water can continue to bring up water and nutrient to the plant. So what Kratke came up with is a brilliant little idea here is if your, if your grow time was long enough that your water was going to almost completely evaporate and then the plant would die from not having enough nutrient and water. Just take a float valve and plumb in a point where once the water reaches that point, that reservoir tank maintains that level. So that's your Kratke. And, and you can either do it with or without that reservoir and that float valve. But if you do it without the float valve, you're going to have to keep topping it up. Okay? And, it, you're, and you don't ever want those this really kind of finicky thing with Kratky. Once those roots have that beautiful hair root structure and they're up in the air gap, you don't ever want to fill the fluid all the way back up to them again. They'll die really quick. They've adapted to that open air environment. So we want to pick a point, let's say halfway down, that we maintain the level. And that's Kratky. Uh, the advantages. There's nothing really to break. Since there's no pump, pump can't die. So as long as we don't go below a certain threshold in our, our reservoir, we're gold. And if we're growing lettuces and basils and stuff, we have a deep enough reservoir, it won't even be a problem. We'll just get to a point where we've, we've pruned it enough times, we're ready to start over, we put new plants in, we refill the container, we start the whole process over. So we could have like four of those and stagger them. So each week a new one is becoming the, the youngest plant and going down. And then all we need is some bins and some lights, however we want to arrange them. So that's a real advantage. It requires no extra energy. And if you were doing it outside, you wouldn't even need the lights, which is what Dr. Kratke does, to be fair, most of the time. He's in Hawaii. It doesn't freeze there. Uh, next, you have um, there's zero energy usage. That's another advantage, right? So like I said, we, we have no pumps, so we don't have to have any electricity. And for an indoor system, we no, need no extra energy beyond the lights, which are very efficient to run. And... It works. It, I mean, that's the biggest advantage of cracky. It just works. And it is kind of amazing what happens when that air gap forms. And I want you to think about that when I talk about adding that element to other systems. And it can run on a timer as far as the lights. So basically, you put one little $8 timer in, and you say, I want my lights to run on a 12-hour, 12-on, 12-off cycle. You grow very, very quickly because the plants are getting 12 hours of growth a day under lights and 12 hours of rest. You could even go to a 14-10. That's about the, the optimum that I've found for rapid growing with, with still giving the plants time to rest. There are some disadvantages of Kratky, and this is why I'm going to talk about the other ones today. It does require that topping up on a longer grow. And it is very easy, especially during these long winter months, 
to since everything kind of takes care of itself, not to pay attention, you come up one day and your plants are just dead. Ask me how I know. Right? So you need fairly big reservoirs, and that takes a lot of vertical space if you're stacking a system. And it's also a lot of weight if you're stacking a system. Can the shelving you've put it on handle the weight? Remember, water, 8.34, I think, pounds to the gallon. 8.3 something pounds to the gallon. So even 10 gallons of water is 80 pounds. Two 10-gallon containers on a shelf together, it's 160 pounds when it's full. Right? So there's a lot of weight involved there. And you've got to keep at least some minimal level topped up. That requires paying attention to it. Maybe it requires opening the lid. It can result in spills. So it's a little bit more to deal with. Um, and it ends up with significant waste fluid at the end of the grow that needs to be gotten rid of. And there's, what I'm saying is there's still quite a bit of fluid in there. And unless you've designed in some way to drain that, like it's, it's elevated, you have another uh, container that you can drain it into a bucket to dispose of it, it can be a pain in the butt to dispose of, right? And it's a concentrated fluid because of the, the pure way in which it works. It's pure evaporation method as well. Um, and you, you can use a float control valve to a reservoir, but that negates the whole nothing to fail. That valve can clog, etc. But I do recommend that if you're going to do Kratky at home, what I would personally do if you have the floor space is I would not stack it. I'd put your bins next to each other on the ground, and I'd put one bin off to the side. I'd plumb them all together with bulkheads and, and, and PVC pipe or even what's called an aquarium siphon. I'll see if I can find the video where I talked about this. But basically you take two 90s, and you take PVC, and you make a U. You just make it, it looks like, like a, almost like a, you stand it upside down, it'd be like to play paper football kickover. Uh, and you could probably do that with like three quarter inch PVC at this scale. And you fill it up. And the two pieces on the side need to be the same length. You fill it up, you keep it level, and you flip it over from one tank to the other. And basically it will, it will act as a siphon. It will keep the tanks level with each other. So you could put four or five bins in a row, an aquarium siphon between each set, one bin off to the side, that's your reservoir. And that way, when you need to top the system up, all you do is fill that tank. And you can fill that tank all the way to the top damn near, as long as you don't overflow it. And the float valve to one will control the level to them all. But it is another potential point of failure. So you do have to think about that. Um, let's talk about pump-driven advantages. So now we're going to a point where we have that aquarium pump. We have that uh, waterfall pump. So it's actually moving water. It is really easy in a pump-driven system to put in some sort of shelving, put all your grow tubs up above your reservoir tank, set the level you want in those tanks that your plants are growing with what's called a stand-up pipe, which just is how much water goes in there, how much fluid goes in there, before it overflows and drains back down to the reservoir. Real simple. Whatever the, the height of that pipe is, that's how much it's going to hold. You have one reservoir down in the bottom. All the excess goes to that reservoir. Okay? And when you add more fluid, you just fill up the reservoir. It's really simple. And um, you can use crack key elements. This is where I've had some disagreements with people online. Like, I'd say, well, this is deep water culture, which is what we're kind of talking about here with a, a pump driven system and a, a deeper reservoir. But it's it's got it's it's basically Kratky combined with deep water. And Dr. Kratky again said it would be correct to describe it that way. What you do is you set your overflow really high, 
when you first turn the system on and you put your net cups in so the net cup is touching the water. You let that system go until maybe the roots are a couple inches long down in the water. You then reduce the length of your stand-up pipe and you put an air gap in it. So now you're still running a pump, but you've got an air gap and it's perfectly maintained. In fact, what you're doing here, in my view, is you're doing Kratky at a maintained level, but you are using an electric pump to do so. And you are perfectly going to maintain that level by filling one container. And unlike float valves, especially kind of getting hanky as you're going through multiple systems indoors, I think you have a lot less potential for one of them to mess up and then dump all the fluid out on the ground. Right, so that's that is why I really like this system. It's the system that I'm going to use myself for my indoor grow this year. Um, next, you can pump out your water for fluid changes or at the end of the season. So since you have a pump, you can run an offset like just a, a, a T valve with a straight a, a, a T connector, and run off. One piece and put a swing valve or a straight valve, whatever you want to call it on there. You keep that closed, the water pumps, it goes up into your system. Uh, you shut one valve on one side, open a valve on the other, it pumps out. Take a bucket, turn your pump on, pump water in the bucket, carry the stuff outside. And what do I do with mine? I throw it in my swales in my permaculture system. But it's commercial fertilizer. Not going to get into it today. Already killed it. It's dead. Don't worry about it. The volume is so insignificant. You're taking care of your soil. These fertilizers don't hurt soil depending on them, to the exclusion of taking care of the soil is the problem. So it's real easy. And then, so I've got my reservoir empty, and now I've still got fluid up in my top tank. Pull the stand-up valve out, let it drain down into the reservoir, pump it into the bucket, take it outside. Makes changing, moving, etc. really easy when we have a pump to move fluid with. We could even, you know, put a fitting on it, run a garden hose, and it won't destroy the universe, I promise you. Run it into the other room, into your bathtub, pump all the water into the bathtub to empty the system out. So we're not carrying sloshing buckets around. Pump it out the window to the tree you want to fertilize, whatever. And that's that's a huge advantage uh, when we're looking at uh, a pump system. And it's highly automated. I love automation. I always say with automation, what would you do if you didn't have to do it? Right? So most people run... Hydroponic systems on a pump, they plug the pump in, the pump runs 24-7. Absolutely no need to do that. You hate money. That's how I feel about it. You hate money. You're paying to run that, as small as it is, you're paying to run that pump more than you have to. You're also going to reduce the life of the pump. I generally run these systems 15 on, 45 off. So I buy a little $8 timer. Again, it's in the, the notes. It'll be with the audio podcast. It'll be up soon after this live video is done. And you just go every hour and push down one pin. You don't have to set the timer then, right? Not for the pump. So you use one timer for the lights and one timer for the pump. And that one that's on the pump comes on 15 minutes, goes off. It could run 15 minutes every two hours, folks. You're going to get enough air in the system, especially if you grow down a level and put that air gap in there so you have like a cracky deep water hybrid. And then you could run that, frick, you could run that, 15 minutes once a day once that's established, but since you'll probably have plants at different stages of growth in your system, I would just go with a 1545. Unless you're going to do two systems, baby plants and harvest-sized plants. Then you could do one at 15 a day and the other 1545. Up to you. But really, really easy to automate, which means you don't forget to do things. You don't forget to do things. So 
you, you do what you will is that. Um, next, I want to talk a little bit about the disadvantages. Of course, more energy, additional expenses, and an additional point of failure. If the pump stops running, especially if you don't check on your system, then eventually you'll have too much evaporation in the system and you'll have problems. So that's just another thing that can go wrong. Um, it is more likely to experience leaks and overflows. I said you're less likely to have overflow scenarios where something gets clogged in one of those top reservoirs in a hydro than an aqua system. It's true. I've never had one in an indoor system. I did have one in an outdoor system. And it's an interesting little story here because what it does is when people say, it's environmentally catastrophic or whatever, you know what the greatest indicator species on your property is? Do you have healthy ecosystems? The answer, frogs. If frogs live in a system, it is not an unhealthy chemical-ridden system. It just isn't. So I have a system outside that runs in four-inch pipes, and there's three pipes, and they run on three stages in the front of my greenhouse. And then I have about a 40-gallon reservoir and a little pump that runs down there and runs water through them. Well, one day I came out, and the pump reservoir was empty, which was really disconcerting because I just filled it the day before. And so obviously I had an overflow. So I started checking all of the overflow stacks. Turned out the top one, poor frog, went in there head first, got jammed in, and couldn't get out. So the only thing that's ever clogged one on me was frog. But it does mean that clogs can happen. If clogs happen, you can have overflow. Your Kratky system is not going to overflow. right? It's just not going to happen. So that's another potential disadvantage. Everything has you know pluses and minuses. Um, it does require that you have a significant level of elevation change between your reservoir and your grow tanks. And so you have to get the tanks that are doing the growing up off the ground because you need gravity to bring the flow back to you. There's a way around this that I'm not going to get into today, but it, it basically would function the same way uh, that the air pump driven system would work. And that would be basically you have a contained system with a small pump in it. You build some sort of uh, like uh, manifold based PVC pipe system and it would just spray water inside the container. To me, that has a real potential to end up spraying water outside the container too. So I don't really like that method. That's why I'd go to the air pump method that we'll cover next. Um, and it requires pipes, fittings, bulkheads. You may integrate some of those elements into the other systems we're talking about today, but you're going to absolutely have to with pump because you're moving water. We need plumbing. Bulkheads are just simply a device that penetrates a container. But all this stuff costs what? Money. Like you can't, especially with supply chain issues, right? You can't go down to like Home Depot or Lowe's and be like, hey man, I'm a really good looking guy. Can I have some free PV sitting things and, and bulkheads and stuff like that? No, you're going to have to pay for it. So it becomes a more expensive system overall. I still think it pays for itself. And personally, this is my preferred system. Just tell you how I feel about it. Next, air pump systems. What is an air pump system? So this can be a really small system. It can be multiple grow beds. But we can take one air pump and we can power. We can power multiple grow beds with a single air pump, depending on how much volume we have there. But I'm going to give you like the simplest, easiest air pump driven um a hydroponic system you could ever build. Go get yourself about, you know, somewhere between a 20 and 35 gallon uh, Rubbermaid tub. A good rigid solid one of some sort. It doesn't have to be Rubbermaid, but you know what I'm talking about. A tub in that environment, right? 
and then get yourself an air pump that will power at least two air stones. And I'm talking about the air stones that you get in the fish aquarium industry. They're about, you know, they're like 10 inches long, so it spreads the bubbles out. And either an air pump will either have two, two, uh, two nipples on it, or get a splitter, and you put a little piece of hose there, and you run that, and you just put those in the bottom of your Rubbermaid tub. Okay? And then you can just simply keep it topped up. You know, you, you can, you know, maybe not all the way top of it. You don't have to worry about, hey, am I, am I damaging my crap key zone in this thing? Okay? And you fill it up with fluid. You take your lid. You drill holes in it with a hole saw. You drop your neck cups in. Put your plants in. Turn your air pump on. That air pump's going to put tons of oxygen into the water, and it's also going to create this little flecky zone up on the top. If you've ever put a pump in that's maybe a little bit too powerful, not throttled back enough in your fish tank, you know you end up having to like put a, a, th a throttle valve on it because it actually like, sprays water up out of your tank. It makes a mess. But with that lid on there, it can spray a little bit of water. It's not going to make a mess. Now, this works really good. And if you get yourself like Eheim, it's a German uh, fish tank, uh, fish products company for like tropical fish industry, they are top quality. You get yourself one of their larger pumps. It's going to cost some money, but you can easily push air into about three good sized grow beds with one pump that way. And we do not have to run that pump 24 hours a day. I would run that more of an hour-on, hour-off cycle, but then that's only 12 hours a day that we're running that pump. And this is a really easy way to go. And if you want to do like two grow beds out of just two tubs, they can sit on the ground. You're just going to have to keep an eye on the fluid level. But as you might imagine, we can add a crafty element to this. Now, personally, I would not try to put these together with any kind of siphon or, or what have you or any kind of bulkhead connecting them. I would run a reservoir tank with two separate feeds, one high and one a little bit low with an air gap. Young plants, old plants, but one reservoir. And it's passive, there's no pump, and you have the air stones in each of them. Okay? And then all you do, you take your reservoir and you keep your reservoir topped up. That's going to maintain a high level touching the bottom of the cups in the baby plant one, and it's going to leave an air gap of, let's say, two to three inches in the one over to your to, to your other side, right? To your, your like mid-sized to harvestable size plants. Throw your babies in there, throw your seeds in there. Once they get the roots down, pick your, your kind of oldest, not so happiest plant that's about ready to be done. Pull it out, put a seed in that one, drop it back in the baby hole, take the plant out of the baby hole, put it in the adult hole. Simple. Constantly going. And when we get to the disadvantages, you'll see how there's a big advantage to this as well. Um, it really supercharges growth. I, I think it actually, in general, for some of the plants in the system, will actually give you faster, hardier growth than even moving it with a water pump. The plants love this. And when combined with that cracky element of the air gap in that older plant container, and you can, of course, have as many containers as you want in a system like this. You just need more pumps if you get to too many containers. But, man, that, that misting up into that air gap zone, the plants go berserk. It just works really, really well. It's less expensive than a water pump, depending on how big your system is going to be and how many pumps you need. It's really easy to put 10 re reservoirs together with one water pump. 
You can't really do that unless you have a really big and then noisy air pump. The Aheem, uh, the reason I like those one is they're very quiet. Uh, Tetra Whispers are a much lower end pump, but they're also very quiet. But as you get up in size, sooner or later, you have to, you know, some at some point, you're moving enough air, you're going to create a lot of noise. So uh, that's that's there to consider as well. But if you're doing a small system. It will cost probably less money to do it with air pumps. They also last longer and are less likely to fail. I've got air pumps that have been running in some of my aquariums for like eight years. And every once in a while I think, is that air pump not quite putting out output anymore? And you take it, you clean out all the, the tubing lines and everything, and it's just back. Especially, like I said, the higher-end uh, air pumps uh, tend to, to work really good for that. Um, they do not require a reservoir. You can completely just take one tank, one little $10 air pump, and you can grow hydroponics in it. You can open it up, and once you get to a certain point, kind of just keep adding adding fluid to it. You can keep a couple gallons of premixed fluid sitting next to it and go by every couple days when you're harvesting and just top it up. Do it by eye. Leave that air gap. You know, let those plants get to a size. It, it can be that way. But if you do want to, to, to make things more automated, you can add that float valve. It'll work just fine for you. So that's really nice as well. Um, like I said, it can use crackly elements, and I think it should. I think either you have enough plants that have gotten to enough size that you let just by your manual refill that air gap flow or like the two-tank system or two-stage system really just it's, it's bang on. In fact, as I say this, And I'm thinking about doing mine this year. I'm thinking, do I really want to do a water pump-driven system? That it, This does work so well. Um, and again, it can run on a timer, so we don't have to use that pump 24-7. The disadvantage is it does have an additional element. You do have to buy a pump. Cracky, no pump. So it has that disadvantage over cracky. Um, it does have those additional expenses because now we need tubing and air stones and things like that. And it has to have an energy requirement. And it's going to require topping over the length of growth. You're going to have a point where you're going to have to add fluid to it. So it, it, it's going to add a complexity level to that depending on how you do it. If you do it with a water uh, pump-driven system, you're going to have a reservoir. It makes it very clear what you're going to do. So for a first-timer, it might be a little more complex uh, than a water-driven system to get right out of the gate. But once you do, it's really, really easy. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the functions of this system for your lifestyle resiliency. If you're new to TSPC, the Survival Podcast, then you might not realize that we're not a survivalist podcast, really. We're a lifestyle design podcast, and part of the lifestyle that we design is non-brittleness and resiliency in our lifestyle. Because you can do everything. You can be chugging along and your life can be going great. And if you're not on some level a prepper, then you haven't designed resiliency and non-brittleness into your life. Okay? And so when somebody gets a cancer diagnosis or somebody loses a job or a roof gets blown off a house, it can completely derail your life. So it doesn't have to be an apocalypse. It doesn't have to be the blue helmets coming to take away your tomatoes or whatever. There's all types of things that can derail our lives. And what I love about these simple little systems is they add to that lifestyle resiliency because they give you fresh food on demand. When all this COVID crap started, right, um, I was surprised. One of the first things that disappeared in grocery stores was salad greens. 
Like, I went to the grocery store. Everybody was scared, hiding in their little masks or whatever. And I'm like, that's stupid. But, like, you just walk through the produce section and go, holy crap. Right? So it adds that resiliency of having that one element of your diet there. It can start plants for spring and fall gardens. So I grow basil and lettuce and some other stuff we'll talk about all through the winter. And then about three, because this stuff grows really fast indoors, about three weeks before I'm going to put my plants outside into my garden, my peppers, tomatoes, that stuff at that point, I don't want to grow that stuff indoors to size. It's too, it's too much of a pain in the ass. I'll leave it at that today. But I can grow a tomato plant this big in three weeks with a massive root system, and when I drop that in my garden soil outside, it's going to take off. Or I can start plants like that for my outdoor hydro systems as well. So they come out of a two-inch net cup, they go in a four-inch net cup, they go in a five-gallon bucket system that recirculates, boom, off to the races. So it not only enables me to eat this really high-quality food all winter long or even all year long, you can grow your salad greens in, in, inside all year you want to. Like, we have a different type of problem here in our summer. Growing lettuce, arugula, things like that in Texas in the summer... It's a challenge. Growing it indoors year-round, easy peasy. So it gives you that starting plants, etc., and it can later be expanded to any size. So a lot of people are like, well, if things go really bad, I'll have to grow more of my own food. What if you had a system that was already growing some of your own food and you could modularly expand it at will? So it adds a ton to your lifestyle resiliency. I've kind of explained the basics of these systems today. Again, you will have to figure out how to piece them together. I've done tons of episodes on this. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com, search for hydroponics if you haven't heard those episodes. We go through exactly how to do this in tons of different episodes after you pick what you want to do. But I'm going to promise you, you can do this. Let's talk about what we're going to grow and why we're going to grow that. This is what I recommend. Two colors of a leaf lettuce crop. Generally a red and a green. Because it looks good. Because it looks good. Because it makes a salad appealing to have like a ruffled red leaf and more of like a straight green leaf or something like that. But, you know, and I don't care what kind, but like I grow red sails and black seeded Simpson. Those are my two go-to kind of leaf lettuces. And I also recommend that you grow a variety of romaine lettuce. So those are your more, you know, upright kind of head type form lettuce. I recommend that because, again, it adds a different texture It's a thicker leaf. It holds more moisture, so mixed into a salad, it tastes better. But I am also, uh, for those who don't know me, a very much a keto carnivore guy. I don't eat a lot of vegetables. I don't eat a lot of squash, and I don't eat a lot of potatoes and stuff like that. I eat mostly meat and leaf vegetables, which is why this system works very well for me. But, you know, there's times when, like, you know, make a really cool, badass kind of, like, uh, an Asian uh, beef dish. Right, And then it would be nice to have some sort of bread or something to wrap around. Romaine lettuce works really great for that. Or something kind of like in the Mexican direction of like a taco or something. Uh, again, romaine lettuce leaves work really, really great for that. Or a sandwich type situation. So I like having that for that additional element as well. Arugula. Arugula brings you that sharp, nutty character that arugula is. And arugula grows fast. Arugula is the plant, if you can't grow arugula in hydro, you got something bad wrong. It is incredibly fast, incredibly easy, it's incredibly nutritious, and it has a diversity where it is really great for doing things like making salads, using it in, in the typical fashion you would a leaf green vegetable, but it's also delicious cooked. So sometimes if I want to you know, kind of 
bring things up a little bit. Maybe I take some uh, some stalks of Swiss chard, chop that up, throw that in a skillet, a little bit of cauliflower rice, and then finish that with an arugula. Or I like to use arugulas in broths and soups and stocks and stuff like that as well. Again, kind of right at the end, throw it in, let it wilt. And it has, so it has that diversity. Next up is one to two varieties of Asian greens. What do I mean by that? I mean, get a good seed catalog that has like specialty greens available in it, um, and then look at what they have for Asian greens. Uh, there's like a purple red, it's, it's called mazook or something, mustard that I grow a lot of. Um, there's like, like tot soy, just something that's unique and different. You pick what you want uh, and grow a couple of those and then grow some spinach. Spinach, again, now we're back into arugula's role. We can put small baby spinach, leaves, etc. into salads, anything we'd use a, a raw green for. But we also have the ability to use spinach in cooking soups and stir-fries and stuff like that. So now we have that additional diversity. My problem I've had with spinach, and I don't know how many of you have had this problem, and I don't know if it's regional, but, but I, I have this even indoors. When I was a kid in Pennsylvania, I could literally have opened a package of spinach seeds, threw it in my hand, and threw it in the garden, kicked some dirt around, walked away, came back in two or three weeks, and there would have been spinach there. I have terrible germination rates with spinach in my garden, in my aqua, and in my hydroponic systems. All of them. I don't know why. I just do. And instead of worrying about why, I'm a solutions-oriented person. So when I'm going to plant spinach... Two days before I'm going to plant my spinach, I take a couple pieces of paper towel and fold it up until it's about, you know, as big as my two hands. One, you know, one more fold, it'll be about the size of one of my hands. And I wet it down really good and I squeeze the excess moisture out, lay it down on the thing. And if I'm going to plant 10 spinach plants, I throw down 15, 20 spinach seeds. I'll have some extra ones, whatever. Fold the paper towel over put it inside a Ziploc bag, seal the Ziploc bag up, and put it in a nice warm place for two days. My nice warm place, the top of my cable TV box. Right? Because it's right there and I won't forget I did it. Two days later when you open it and unfold it, you'll see probably most, if not all, the spinach seeds will have a little white rootlet sticking out of them. They're going to germinate now no matter where you put them. So that's my little hack. And any seed you have a problem germinating, cilantro anyone, you can do this with. And it will generally greatly or vastly improve your uh, your germination if you're having it. And something like a spinach seed or a kale seed that's pretty large, really, really easy to do with. So spinach, and there's a germination trick. I recommend two types of basil because it's such an amazing treat to have fresh basil in February. I mean, if you're from Hawaii or something, I'm sure you're like, whatever, dude. But if you're from, like, Michigan and you have fresh basil in February, that's pretty cool. And again, you have the different colors. So I usually do like a purple basil and Genovese basil, which is the big, sweet basil leaves. Those go in your salads. Those are herbage for your cooking, etc. And again, they bring that color and that diversity. Or you could do something like a lemon basil and a sweet basil. Or you could do like a holy basil. I grow a lot of holy basil outside during the summer. Uh, maybe I'll grow some indoors this year. But usually I just do a purple basil and like a Genovese basil. Uh, I also recommend parsley. And... It can be a little bit of a pain in the butt to get to to, uh, to sprout as well, to germinate as well indoors. My solution with that is I just take a whole pinch. Like, you know, it's probably 10 seeds. It's cheap. Put them all in one grow pot, and if more than, more than, uh, more than a couple come up, snip them off. No problem. No foul. No, pro you know, no worries. Sometimes another thing you can do for germination, put a humidity dome over 
your your uh, pods. You can have a little separate thing, throw a little water in the bottom of it, put a, some sort of humidity dome over it, and get better germination that way. But, but parsley, I have germination issues, but they're really not that big a deal. A little pinch of seed and uh, take the ones that come. That is just, again, a great herb. It's good in your salads. Those of you that eat things like potatoes or whatever, it's friggin' awesome for. Uh, and it's really long-lived. It's a biannual. So the beauty is you can probably take your parsley all the way through your winter, and you probably want to prune out like all but a couple of the things in your net pot for your parsley because you're going to get a really big root system on that. But as long as you can get that net cup off of it, you can take that plant and put it out after using it all winter long in your garden, and it will probably bolt early. It won't take a full year to bolt, and it will make a gazillion seeds. And so then you have parsley seed forever, and then you spread it around your property, and you have parsley for the rest of your life. So that's why I threw that one in there as well. A couple little hacks, green onions. You don't need a net cut for them, right? You can, whatever you have your hole in, you can basically set something to hold it and just put the green onion in and keep cutting the tops off. Uh, of those, those are uh, fantastic to grow. And my other one that I grow often in my indoor systems, and I'll just take a drill and drill like a quarter-inch hole in between where all my leafy greens are growing and take one stem of it and put it down in there and let it just grow, like postrate all in between everything, watercress. So now you've got that peppery kind of nasturtium thing going on. Watercress and nasturtiums are in the same family, by the way. I think the watercress Latin name is something nasturtium. Uh, but you've got that peppery thing going on. Now you can grow it in some little cups, but you really don't have to. Like I said, you can just drill a hole, poke it through, and now you've got like a bonus crop without doing any extra work. Now think about what you have there from a standpoint of salad and cooking with greens. Two colors of leaf lettuce, one variety of romaine, arugula, a couple different Asian greens, spinach, a couple types of basil, parsley, green onions, and watercress. That's a lot, and you can grow that in a system, that, you know, like a 27-gallon Rubbermaid, like two of those. You need, plus the little extras for the green, and the, the green onions and the watercress, you need 27 holes to do three varieties of each. That's, or 28, 28 grow spaces. I just looked over at it, yeah, for three plants of everything you have here. That's, that's something you can easily fit into two decent-sized Rubbermaids. And you really are going to be able to have two, three, four salads a week, depending on how much salad you eat, plus some stuff for cooking every week all winter long. And if you need more, you just put more in. But start small with these things, guys. Get your feet wet while you get the plants roots wet. You know, learn, learn from the system as you go. Um, three plants is ideal, too. And this is why. You can have one starting, one kind of teenager, and one kind of at the end of its life cycle where maybe it's going to... Be tired of cut and come again and have to be replaced. There's a lot of things you can do, too, to enhance this. You can go into your system, and I believe it's a three-inch net cup. or yeah, It's a three-inch net cup, I think, that will fit perfectly into a regular-sized ball jar mouth. You'll have to check and see if I'm wrong on that. But you can take, let's say, three or four ball jars and just fill them with plain water. Go to your system and take three or four plants Put them in the jar and set them on the table. Let people just cut their own salad for a couple days. right? When they're kind of pruned down, take them back, put them back in, pull some other ones out. And you can run that on and on and on. Once that plant's grown, it doesn't need a constant supply of nutrients. It just kind of stay in a stasis, and it will start growing again. Guys, I have taken things like baby pok choy. You buy in a store, you know, the plant's about, you know, big, a little bit bigger in your hand. 
pulled all the outer leaves off of it. And this has been sitting in a store for God knows how long, but that plant's still alive. Left the heart of it, stuck it in one of my hydro aqua systems, and it starts growing again. I do this with celery all the time. Pull all the stalks off the out of the celery, take the heart of the celery, stick it in a system, it starts growing again. So you can definitely do that with your own plants. They're going to do much better because they've had no transportation time. So that's another little hack that you can use uh, with this. And it's going to easily provide those salads to your family. Three or four every week for a family of four, just from a couple bins. Um, now, I want to talk about fertilizer. And the only fertilizer I'm going to recommend today, it's not the only one I use. Uh, I have other ones available on the website. But Master Blend is the easy button for this, and it's cheap. You can take and buy this stuff in fairly large packages, and you can store enough for years, and I mean for five years of growing a system this size, year-round, let alone winter only. And the cost of making your fluid is about 2.5 cents to the gallon when we look at the ratio that we use for greens. I have stopped even doing meter readings. Everybody that tells you how to do hydro is going to say you need to get a solids meter and you need to aim for blah, 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 blah. No. If you're growing, if you're growing complex plants outdoors in large-scale systems, I bet you do. If you're growing lettuce and arugula and maybe celery cores and some Asian greens and spinach and basil and parsley and stuff like we talked about today... You just follow the 2-2-1 instructions on the Master Blend Fertilizer, and you never even have to think about it. And I'll tell you this thing about, well, after three weeks, you need to change out your... I don't do any of that shit, right? I don't do any of that. I go, I need more fluid. I need about four gallons of fluid. Four gallons of fluid goes to the... When you look at a five-gallon bucket, the bottom of the rim, where that extra reinforced rim is, that's about four gallons. I fill it up with that. And so four times two grams to the gallon of the master blend itself is eight grams. A little bitty scale. I have it on the website. The resource link, it'll be in the notes for this video, right? Eight grams of it, dump it in the bucket, take a, a cordless drill and a mortar mixer. Mix it up. Then the calcium nitrate, same thing, two grams to the gallon, dump it in, mix it up, and then one gram to the gallon of the Epsom salts, throw it in, mix it up. Sit, and then dump it in the reservoir or add it you know, with a smaller container to the tank if you're doing manual topsoil. That's it. I did it the hard way. I did it all perfectly balanced, and I did another system right next to it. I went with the 2-2-1 formula and didn't worry about it. I didn't worry about pH. I didn't worry about balance. I didn't worry about starting solids. I didn't worry about any of it. And you know what the difference between the two of them was? I couldn't tell a difference. I couldn't tell a difference at all. So, you know, do with that as you will, but that's why I recommend it. It's absolutely all you need for the leaf crops covered here. It's stupid cheap. It will do a great job on your peppers, your tomatoes, and everything like that if you use the higher ratio if you're actually growing them out. But if you're starting them, in other words, I want to put tomato seeds into a few cups in my hydro system, and I want to plant six tomatoes in my garden in the spring. You use the same ratio for the leafy greens, that plant will do fine. That plant needs nothing beyond that until it starts to flower. Until it starts to flower and fruit, it will use... In fact, when you grow with it, and you're growing tomatoes and peppers from seed in the system, it tells you, use this ratio till this point, and then sw switch over to this higher level of 3-3-2 when you go to fruiting and flowering. So, 
it's it's one step easy button for the type of thing we're talking about today. And um, one big word of advice on it. Store it in an airtight container. Let me tell you what not an airtight container is. The bag it comes in, cutting a hole in it, dumping some out, rolling it up and putting a, like a chip clip on it. That's not airtight. And specifically, the master blend, which is kind of the, the one that kind of, kind of goes yellow, will pull moisture out of the atmosphere and liquefy itself, and the Epsom salt will turn into a giant cake. Calcium nitrate will be just fine, but the other two will, they will ruin it. What I do, I take great big ball jars, half-gallon ones, and I just dump it in there and put a lid on it, and it'll be fine. If you want to put a desiccant in there, you can. It might get a little cakey, but it won't matter. You take a spoon, it'll, it'll come apart. But you do not want to expose the atmosphere. You will ruin that multi-year storage uh, stuff that you have. So make sure it's an airtight container. And then if you do that, it's great. Thoughts on containers? Kratky. If you want to be as simple as possible, Kratky, you take a ball jar, a one-quart ball jar, put a net cup in the top, drop a grow pellet in it, drop a lettuce seed in it, put it under lights, or stick it in a really, really sunny window. That's all you need to do. It's kind of bulky and cluttery and not really efficient. You have to fill all the jars individually. Now, the amount of time it takes for a full quart to totally evaporate, you're probably ready to replace that plant anyway. But if you want the easiest way in the world to get started with this, Kratky in ball jars. And it's a great way to get started. And if it's your entry drug, fine. Here's what I know about it. Everybody that's ever done it changed over to doing something in a more conventional reservoir system. Everybody I know that's ever done it went, this is cool, but I've got all these jars everywhere, and, and went over to doing something a little bit more conventional, but you can get started there. Uh, Rubbermaid-style tubs are kind of the go-to universal. If you look up hydroponics, anything on YouTube, you'll find tons of people that built systems showing you how to do it, and you'll see like the Rubbermaid-style tub is the number one. My caution, bigger ain't always better. I think it's like the 37-gallon ones that are the yellow and black ones. They're not actually made by Rubbermaid, but like Home Depot and Lowe's sell them. They have kind of the checkered top, and they recess. They're really nice for storage stuff in like trucks and stuff because you can stack them. They kind of nest in each other, and then when you, if it rains, you take the lid off. The, the excess water just dumps out of the way. It doesn't get inside. Uh, those work really good. I think the kind of mid-sized one is about 37 gallons. It'll bow some, but it'll work. You go beyond that, and the sidewalls of those things, they're not meant to be filled with water. Kind of like the 13 into the mid-20-gallon range, those things are solid. They handle the pressure no problem at all. So just understand, like they make a 100-gallon one. No, it's not going to work. And then think about weight. Even if you're totaling 100 gallons, and what kind of floor where you're putting this load at, a hundred gallons of water is 833, 34, 35, something like that. 830 plus pounds. All right. So think about where you're putting these things, especially if you're doing rack based systems. Like your, your reservoir, your heavy reservoir belongs on the ground. And, you know, 10, 10 gallon containers is a hundred gallons as well. So think about that as you're, you're, you're laying these out. Um, you can do pipe based systems where you're running water through pipes. You've probably seen these for sale. They have some issues, and if you're using like a two-inch pipe, let me tell you something. You're not doing deep water culture. You're doing what's called nutrient film technique that we didn't talk about today. And the reason is if you put a two-inch net cup in a two-inch pipe, 
when you drill that hole in the top of the pipe, you're going to come down on the sides, and you're actually going to reduce how much water can fit in that pipe by a lot. And these also have a tendency to be more likely to clog up than a simple reservoir overflow stack system. So there is that. They also end up costing more than you expect. My buddy David always says of PVC pipe, think of the pipe this way. The pipe itself is free. Right? And the reason the pipe is free is it can always be reused. Right? So we can change our mind or whatever and what have you and we reuse the pipe. And it's also, but per 10 foot section, I know supply chain issues, PVC is much more expensive. But if you were the type of system we're talking about, you know, think of what you can do with 100 feet of pipe. And 100 feet of pipe is not that expensive. You know what's expensive? Fittings. Fittings are expensive. And when you start piecing together, One of these pipe-based systems, you end up really quickly having more money in the fittings than the pipe. So they're not as cost-effective, but they do work, and they give you maximum flexibility. So I can see why people would do it. I have one outside, and it taught me two things. One, it's going to cost more than you ever thought it would. So your yield versus your input cost takes longer to pay back. But two, if you're going to do it, get some sort of device that shoots a laser beam, Put that across the top of your pipe and mark your holes that you're going to drill along that beam. You will never get a perfectly straight line across any other way. And that means that your holes will be offset and you will reduce the capacity even further as you try to get it as straight as possible. And some of the edges of your holes come down a little further on the walls of the pipe. So I would do that if I did it again, and I probably won't. Um, and then you can build your own boxes and line them either with pond liner Or like the, the liner that the, they use for vapor barrier in attics and stuff like that, the thicker one, I think it's like six mil or whatever it is. You might think, well, that's not really thick. But you're not holding that much water if you're building your own reservoirs, like out of wood. And you could put two in it. And if you ever get a pinhole leak, you drain it and put three. Right? It's cheap. You can buy a big roll of it. And it's real easy. And that gives you ultimate flexibility on the size and dimensions of your trays. So those are some different ideas for that. Um, now... One more thing I want to talk about for indoor growing. You think with indoor growing, screw a greenhouse. I don't need a greenhouse indoors. You might not need it, but you might want it. And the reason is most of us, our homes are not quite as warm in the winter as they are in the summer. And plants like this that we're growing, they, also, they like warm, they like consistent, and they like some humidity. So, so little interruption right there. So the beauty with the greenhouse design is you get all of those things. And what I have found works really well in a stacked system with racks, and I have a little uh, four-tier mini greenhouse that I really like that I, I run my system in, is that even if the front is open, then you don't really, you still get a lot of like climate control. And I get faster growth rates that way than I do in an open system. Again, you don't need it. You'll get faster, more consistent growth. It also makes kind of dealing with your plants a little harder. So you have to really decide if that's something you want to deal with or not. Because remember, if you have things plumbed together, it's not so easy to just grab a tray and pull it out. On that note, if you're going to do that and you're going to want to, then as you plumb your tanks together, you're going to want to think about where to put valves and maybe unions or points where you can separate so I can remove one and shut the system off so it doesn't kick on while I'm in the middle of maintenance and I thought I had enough time and I didn't and then the water goes everywhere. 
You see where that starts to get a little bit complicated. So whether or not you want to do that is something you have to decide for yourself. It works pretty good with self-contained crack key. If you're not doing a reservoir, it works great with that because you can pull the whole system out, rearrange some things, and put it back in and top it up. But if you're doing any kind of plumbing, putting a greenhouse around it means I can't access them from the sides and the back, and it's a little bit more complicated. Another thing you need to think about, you take a hydroponic system, you put it in an indoor greenhouse. Basically, you have a piece of clear plastic over top of a system that has a pretty significant amount of evaporation, and it's warm because the lights are on during the day. It creates a whole bunch of condensation. And then what happens with the condensation? goes all over the inside of your mini greenhouse, and a lot of it falls right back down onto your top tank. That's fine. You know the rest of it goes? Down the sides of the greenhouse to your floor. It's like it's raining in your house. So think about that, and you probably need to put some sort of liner or reservoir. Now, so what somebody told me is the biggest uh, of the tubs that you can buy for concrete mixing at like Home Depot and Lowe's, the 21-gallon black tubs, The four-tier mini greenhouse that I recommend will fit perfectly in one of those. They're about 13 bucks. Problem solved. So just wanted you to know that so you didn't get in trouble because some of you guys are going to get yourself in trouble with these systems with your wife. Right? You don't want to make a mess either, but we all know how that is. Our projects make messes and we get in trouble. Why did you do that for? All right. I want you to realize that this is something anybody can do. In fact, all this stuff I threw at you today... You can easily set up a system like this that will feed your family a few salads a week for under 100 bucks. And if you go down to the grocery store and you realize, I don't care if this would qualify for USDA organic because the United States government has ruined what that label means anyway. But it's probably the best you can do at Whole Foods or Albertsons or Kroger or whatever. And you bought enough salad greens to do that. It won't take you long to spend 100 bucks. And everything past that is almost free food. It has an amazing ROI. And if you start looking at, well, what does it cost to buy well-started plants to put in your garden? And you add that to it, this is something that pays for itself in the first season probably two to threefold. And now you've got the skill set. You've got the knowledge. You've got the asset. You've got the flexibility. You can build more and you can do more. And so for all those reasons, I really think this is one of the best projects you can embark on uh, uh, th th this, this winter. And what I'm going to try to do now is if you have a question from today's, go ahead and put it in all caps. I'm only going to do this for about 10 minutes, so I'm going to wrap up um, because I, I don't want the show to go too long. And I'm glad I got that much in. While I'm waiting for questions to come in from the live feed audience, I want to give you one thing that I know I missed here uh, going through all this today. And that is one thing that happens when you use an air stone, aeration, air-driven system. Inevitably, you'll see some plants that are great big and some plants that aren't so happy. And it's because the ones that are straight above where the air bubbles come up, they always do better. Really simple thing you can do. Take your not-so-happy plant, pick it up out of its hole. Take your really happy plant, move it over. It's on its advantage already, and just move them around. So that's a little extra thing we can do there. I'm not seeing any questions coming in, but if anybody's got any, and I know, I've learned there's a pretty big delay between when I ask something and when I get a question back, so I'll, uh, 
I'll give just a little bit more time here for that. If we can get in anything for me on questions, I'm sure there are some today in all caps. Um, we'll cover somebody else's comment here real quick. In my opinion, the general hydro tomato blend is too high in potassium and phosphorus. This causes greens to molt earlier than desired. I'd go with their Marcy Grow available on Amazon. So that is a company that I've actually worked with, and they're really good, and they have the Texas tomato food and all, and it is a great product because it's a liquid. But I completely agree with that sentiment, by the way. Um, it's you, Especially in when you're trying to grow that plant out in the hydroponic system. If you're growing tomato into a little strong plant to put out in the ground, No big deal with that, but if you're going to keep it in the system long term, I think that you do get things kind of in, in a accelerated growth in a not-so-good way. Um, here we go. Rick DeWeese says, can you add the air stone to the reservoir and pump aerated water? Yes, Rick, you can. And congratulations, you have passed the test of figuring out for yourself that any element... And any hydro system can be combined with any other element. And whether or not it should be is totally dependent upon what you're trying to do and does it make sense. So there's two ways you can do this. One way is you can take your reservoir and your pump-driven system. And you can put an air stone in there and you can get a lot more aeration in that water. So water, every time it's pumped, is bringing more oxygen to your plants. But there's another way. Let's say you had a two-tiered system and you had two grow beds and one reservoir. You could also take that air pump, put an air stone in each of the top ones, and run it there. And that will probably actually work better, but it depends on what you're doing. If you're going to a lot of grow beds from one reservoir, your way is more effective. If there's a limited amount of additional beds, if you still like two or three grow beds, and that pump will split to two or three stones, now you've got redundancy, and then you can even do this. Check this out. Now you can run your pumps 15 on, 15 off, your air pump 15 on, 15 off, but stagger them so half an hour there's always some sort of oxygen happening in your system. But yes, always look to combine elements if it makes sense. Can I watch this video over and over? Very informative. Thank you. Yes, Uh, I do not do this video will self-destruct type crap. I hate YouTubers that do that. I hate video providers that do that. If you miss my live feeds, you can watch them over and over and over and over again. They just get published. And by the way, I love Odyssey. It's actually where I prefer people to view my video content. When I do a live stream on YouTube, it takes about four to 24 hours, depending on how long it is for it to port over to Odyssey. You can check out my Odyssey channel, too, for all of my past videos. How do you start your seeds? Rick, again, okay, so either I just put them right in the system and throw them in the, in the uh, rapid router. Again, all of my resources will be in the audio version of the podcast. There's a link on the video. You can click to that and get over there. Uh, once that's up, that'll be about an hour after this live stream ends. Um, unless there's seeds that are finicky, like the hack I gave you with the paper towel trick. I don't know if you heard that, so I'll say it again. If you have seeds that are poor germinating seeds, take a wet paper towel, a couple layers, Put the seeds on it, fold it over top, stick it in a Ziploc bag, wait a day or two, check your seeds. When they start to germinate, just drop them into your system. But pretty much that's all I do. I don't really have a separate place for my seeds to start in general. However, if you are in a situation where you're doing a lot of turnover, you need a lot less place for seeds to start than you need plants to grow. So you can have a small little Rubbermaid or uh, like a Tupperware thing, and you can just set your net cups in it, 
put about an inch of fluid in the bottom of it, drop your seeds into it, and you can even if set that somewhere where it'll get light from your lights of your system. Put the lid from the Tupperware loosely on top of it. Now you have a humidity dome, and your germination rates will go up. What about roots tangling between plants and your containers? Safe to trim them. You can if you really have to. What I find, if you're gentle when you pull plants out, their roots come apart pretty easily. And if if a little bit tears, they don't care. You know, they don't care. Again, some of the stuff that people worry about like that, I think would have validity if you were growing like a one-acre greenhouse and you were growing for market and you were selling to multiple restaurants. And if you have a 5% re- 5% reduction in yield, that can really hurt your bottom line. But a 5% reduction in yield in a home-based system, you won't even really notice it. Most people will find that you end up with times where you have to cut extra. And if you think it's not going to keep that great in a refrigerator, you'll end up giving some of it to your, you know, giving some fresh greens to your chickens or something like that. Like it will, it will literally produce more uh, than you can eat, even if you're optim, you're not completely optimized with it. Um, can the plants be free floating so they move on top of the tub like uh, bath toys? You can do rafting systems. I didn't cover that today. Um, there's a lot of different material you can use. You can literally get the foam floats like they're like a raft that you float in in the pool, but they're not blow up. They're a, they're a solid piece of foam. You can cut those to the size of your uh, of your, uh, your 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 reservoir, drill holes in them, and you can float with those. You can get the foam insulation that goes in walls. I just don't like it because it tends to break down over time, and then you got to throw it away and replace it. But just the, the cheapest thing you can do is get the foam insulation that you put like three-quarter inch or one inch or one-and-a-quarter inch foam insulation that goes inside a wall, that foam board. You can use that. You can use anything like that. It is another element, and if you do that, the trade-off is I love to incorporate that cracky element of an air gap in my systems. And I've done rafting and I've done systems where it's like a rigid, some sort of rigid thing. So even if it's a container that doesn't come with a lid, like check out the busing trays is what they're called on Amazon. Go through tspaz.com to find them. But they're like seven gallons. They're very rigid. They're designed for a busboy to go out to a table in a restaurant. They make them bigger than the seven-gallon ones as well and put a bunch of heavy dishes in and carry them back. So you can take those and take something like Oh, geez, I can't remember what it's called, but it's the same thing they make, like, political signs out of and stuff. And you can get it at um, Home Depot, Lowe's, et cetera. You cut it with a razor knife. It's kind of a – oh, I can't think of what it's called. Somebody in the comments help me out here. Um, but that's rigid enough that you can generally set it on top of a container like that and then put your cups through. But you can do it either way. I've just done better um, – when it comes to this, having an air gap than a, than a rafting system. But most commercial operations, primarily the lettuce production and other leafy greens, are done in rafts because what they do is they have these massive tanks that are like the size of an Olympic swimming pool, but they're only like a foot deep. And they just put the rafts in on one side and pull them out of the other side, and there's just rows and rows and rows and rows of that. So it does work pretty well. Indoors is using a grow tent advised. That's kind of my indoor mini greenhouse type of thing as, as well. Um, a grow tent is great. It just takes a lot of space up, in my my opinion. I've worked with one. It was like a four by four by six foot high, and boy, it doesn't sound that big. And when you put it in a space, what I would tell you is, if you have the space and you want to, go ahead. And a grow tent has like kind of a reflective inside, so the light bounces really good. Um, where I found it to be beneficial to me to use a grow tent 
was like growing in my garage where I don't have as much control of the temperature because that made it easy. The lights brought the temperature up a lot in the grow tent, even if it was very cold in the garage. And then I took a really small space heater on really cold nights and put it in the grow tent and then basically put what's called a thermocube outside the grow tent, and that comes on at 35 and goes off at 45. So it would, whenever the garage temperature was down near freezing, it would turn that mini heater on the lowest setting in there on. Um, I didn't find it worth it to me, but it might be worth it to you. People that end up doing grow tents and stuff are generally people that are trying to grow tomatoes and peppers and stuff indoors. And that's one of the reasons I don't do it. It's just more work. How is growing cannabis different from vegetables and fruit? Um, I've never grown cannabis, and I'm not saying that due to any fear or anything. I just haven't. I don't have a lot of experience with it. And um, I wouldn't think it actually is that much different from growing a tomato or growing a pepper. Before things really backed off on the cannabis world, when I would go into hydro stores, um, and you could tell they were selling to that market primarily, they almost inevitably grew peppers on display, so I'm thinking maybe it's probably kind of similar. Um, I will tell you that in talking to people that do cannabis, they generally say if you want to start growing cannabis, you're better off using a soil-based system because it is more sensitive to pH than the type of thing we're talking about growing today, and soil is a natural pH buffer. So if you're in a state that's seen the light of liberty and you want to grow indoors now, you may want to grow cannabis in a soil-based system, from my understanding. And it's a, it's an art all to its own. Uh, there are times when you need to look at like when to get it to 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 put on, you know, bud and whatever. And uh, as much as I find it interesting, it's just something I've not had time to do. Okay, uh, Linda is asked, Lisa's asking, can an aquaponic system be set up indoors? It can. Uh, I guess you weren't probably here at the beginning, so you missed my reasons opposed to it. So go back to the beginning of this video or podcast, listen to it there if you missed it. And uh, I think there's a lot of advantages in starting out doing hydro versus aquaponics indoors. I'm a guy, like I said, I've got a couple dozen fish tanks in my house. Any one of them I could throw a grow bed on top of. None of them have it. None of them have it because really an aquaponics system is an overstocked system. That's how we get surplus nutrient. And most people that want to do aquaponics want to do it because they want fish as a product, as something to eat. You're better off putting in a, a freaking above-ground swimming pool you can get for cheap off Craigslist in your backyard and putting in a pond and doing an aquatics system, growing fish, then you, if you want fish as a product, then doing a small aquaponics system. You're not going to get enough fish to make it worth doing, but you certainly can turn a fish tank into aquaponics indoors. You just, as you're learning, now you've got two things you're trying not to kill, right? You're trying not to kill your fish, and you're trying not to kill your plants, and you're trying to get your fish to produce enough waste to grow your plants, and you're probably using pretty small fish. So now you're going to, you know, I would say if you're going to do it, goldfish would be your way to go. You don't care if they die. If you need more, you go to the store and buy them for 13 cents a piece. Right? The ones that die, you go put them into your pot plants, dig a hole in your, your potted plants, stick them in there, they're fertilizer spikes. right? Um, and they produce a lot of ammonia, which is the main thing you're looking for in an aquaponic system. Um, see if there's any more, and I'm going to wrap up. Do concentrations get too high when you top up and don't replace? I have not had that be a problem. Um, however... 
I'm not running my systems 365 days a year when it comes to hydroponics. And there is a point where I just kind of dump it. But in running systems for as long as three months, I have never had the fertilizer concentrations get too high, too much dissolved solids, etc. I just mix more and add more. And I'll tell you this, on my outdoor systems, there's times where it probably works to my advantage because I'll look in the tank and I'm like, I don't think I'm going to have time to mess with this in the next week and it's probably three quarters empty. So it's going to go for another few days before it needs to be topped up. Take the garden hose, I'll fill it up and I won't even add nutrient to it once the plants are well, well, well established. I wouldn't generally advise that. I'm just telling you I've done it, and that probably mitigates it, and it probably also takes advantage of it. But in an indoor system, the scale we're talking, if you think you're getting into that problem, okay, dump and refill. Or, you know, the other thing you can do, you're talking about, let's say you're talking about a 14-gallon Rubbermaid, and your level is down to half, and you need to top up to three-quarters. So you've got seven gallons of water in there. Get a quart jar. Each quart jar is a quarter of a gallon. Take two gallons out. Go water a tree. Then top up with that new measurement if you're worried about it. But I wouldn't sweat it uh, very much. Uh, I really hope you guys enjoyed this one today. And thank you for staying with me here. Thanks for all the great questions. Remember, the audio version of this podcast goes out on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, all that. You can catch it there. There's going to be a link that's in the video notes. If you watch the video here and you want all the stuff that I use, click that link. Go look at the audio version of the podcast. Even if you don't want to li uh, uh, listen to it on audio, you still there's a tremendous amount of resources. Every time you see one of these videos, it's part of a show. That's the case. And if you're listening on iTunes or whatever, you're like, what did he say or whatever? I put a lot of work, guys. I mean, I put a ton of work into my notes that go with my podcast. I see a lot of podcasters, they put out like a paragraph blurb or something for SEO. I put links to everything that I talk about. And if I ever miss something, you go to the, the, the audio version, it's on my blog, in the comments, just tell me, hey, Jack, you said, and I will, I will come back to you with that resource because, yeah, I missed some. Because a lot of times I, I have all these notes done before I start the podcast, and then do the podcast, and during the podcast, I bring things up I didn't think about, and I forget to go backfill. If that happens, let me know. I will hook you up. And guys and gals, thanks for joining me on a great episode today. I really appreciate it. Make sure you tune in for tomorrow's episode on NFTs. I don't care if you think crypto is boring. I am going to blow you away with what this new technology is going to do, building resilient communities. All right, hope you enjoyed that one. Hope it didn't go too long. Hope it gave you the information that you need. I, I didn't go into every detail, nut and bolt of how to put everything together. Uh, none of this is that hard. I wanted to give you exposure to the concept and the ideas and kind of get you thinking about how you can do this for yourself on that smaller scale. And, you you know, I, I said about, you know, doing for a couple salads a week for a family of four. What if you do two salads a week for a family of four? It's still plenty, and maybe it takes a little while to get into it. Maybe you start a really, really small one bin or something like that. One bin, one light set, manually refill, do cracky. I mean, don't make it more complicated than it has to be. Get your feet wet while you get the roots wet on your plants. Learn how it works. And I think the first time that you bite into fresh basil in like mid-January, you'll be like, oh, oh, 
I really should have been doing this a long time ago. With that, let's go ahead and uh, remind you guys that you can help support the Survival Podcast. Whenever you do your online shopping, all you got to do is go to tspaz.com first. Generally, I have an item of the day for you. Today, I'm again, though, reminding you as we go into the holiday season about Amazon Renewed. Now, look, guys, Amazon has done something with this program that is great, But it's also misleading. When you hear renewed, what do you think? Somebody at Amazon got somebody's broken drill or broken radio in some little factory and soldered some crap back together and cleaned it up with a cloth like Hillary Clinton's server and put it out into a warehouse. No, no. There's no such thing as renewed in the way that we think of the word renewed. Renewed means some dude bought something, his wife bitched at him and said, you don't need that, and he returned it. Or somebody bought something that wasn't what they expect. These are returns. And that's why you'll see in the renewed store on Amazon, you don't see any low-end products. You see high-end, high-value products that they're recouping a loss on. That's your gain. It's a way to save money, and remember what I say about money. If you hate money, money will hate you, so don't hate money. And if you don't check renewed first, you hate money. I'm sorry, but you do. Whenever you're buying especially something like high-end kitchen appliances, high-end power tools, etc., and on that note today... What I put out with the article that I've run a couple times now that explains the entire Renewed program, the good, the bad, the ugly, all of it, and what to do and what not to do. I added a little note today, and that is when you click on my link and you go over to the Amazon Renewed store, check this out. Today, put the word DeWalt. Those of you that are in the black and yellow camp like me, put D-E-W-A-L-T and hit search. And check out the DeWalt deals on Amazon Renewed today. The quantity of them. Some are okay. Some are so-so. Some are fantastic. But there's a butt-ton. I don't know if some big, you know, return surge happened or what. But I have told you guys before, why DeWalt gets so many returns? They won't make it clear how to use the damn chargers for the 20-volt systems. There's still a lot of old guys like me out there that had 20-volt systems for years. Uh, I'm sorry, they had we had the 18-volt systems for years, and they have the 20-volt now that they have to lock into the charger. I have a video on that. It's gotten tens of thousands of views and thousands upon thousands of thank yous, and people are returning product that doesn't need to be returned to DeWalt because they're not putting the battery in the charger right. This is an upside win for us, and there is a ton available. And you guys know me. I bleed black and yellow. I love DeWalt. Maybe you don't. If you're a power tool guy, rigid, Milwaukee, all that stuff, check out Renewed today. Check out the article. It's at the Survival Podcast, or you can find it at tspaz.com. And remember, it doesn't matter what you buy, Renewed or not. doesn't matter what you buy. You start your shopping at T-S-P-A-Z, T-S-P-A-Z, easy to remember, .com. It's like Cyber Monday today and all that stuff going on. Hey, you can help us out just by starting your shopping there. With that, let's go ahead and uh, wrap up. Uh, We're going to just keep playing The Revolution is You throughout the rest of this year. We'll bring back Song of the Day starting in 2022, as crazy as that sounds. Remember, like I said, there's one more day in in November. As of right now, one more day. Tick-tock, tick-tock. The clock ticks for us all. What are you doing to further your self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence, and liberty? The topic we gave you today, hydroponics, can do a lot to make that happen. Really easy, really simple, really reliable results right in your own home. And remember, the revolution is indeed you. You pull yourself up, they keep bringing you down. 
Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you'll never have to pay. Show you a better way. You don't have to be another face in the crowd. You don't have to live the way they tell you to. Make your own way, the others will follow. Revolution.